0: Well, if you're jumping in partway through, we've been working through this uh, story, true story, Book of Esther, uh, set in the Persian Empire under King Xerxes. We're working through it. There's a central verse in it. Uh, where, which we will come to where we see that uh, it's possible that Esther might be where she is for just a time as this but we are also as we're working through it I think recognizing that in lots of ways this book that was written thousands of years ago is incredibly helpful in us understanding today for such a time as this this book could be written. It helps us to engage and to understand, come to terms with the uh, world that we live in. It's remarkable because it doesn't contain the name of God from beginning to end. Remarkable book that. It is written as a narrative. Any great story writer carries you along. You know, you've read some books. Well, you've probably started reading some books and you've got, you know, quarter of the way through. Maybe you've kind of grueled it out to halfway through and you've thought, forget it, I'm not going to bother because this, this story writer just isn't carrying me along. Every great story writer carries you along with the story, engages you, gives you a picture of what is going on. This, I find this particular story written in a brilliant way. We come to chapter 2, and if we think about it in this way, chapter 1 is about setting a scene, creating the environment, introducing one of the main characters by temporarily placing another character in there. So we've got King Xerxes, who's crucial to the story, a king on the throne, and Vashti, who is his queen, who is temporarily there, Uh, And yet, it's incredibly important to the way the story unfolds. That's the environment. Now we have that second chapter. It's almost scene two, next phase of the story. Now let me introduce you to the next characters the story writer is uh, opening up for us. As we get to meet, for the first time, the heroine, Esther and her older cousin, Mordecai. So let's dig into this, and let's see where this story takes us. The first thing that we see is it continues, as every good story does, with uh, connecting with what's gone on before. We find King Xerxes, he's been furious, if, we've been, if you've been up with us up to now, apologies, a one-minute recap King Xerxes has got rid of Queen Vashti because he's furious with her because she wouldn't appear at his command in front of all his uh, drunken comrades at the end of a party. He's written a law with the encouragement of his cronies around him. He's written a law that has banished her permanently from his presence. Um, you've probably heard of the, the phrase... Um, Uh, the law of the Medes and the Persians. It's, It's entered into our general language, maybe not quite as much now as in the past, but basically the law of the Medes and the Persians is something that absolutely could never be overturned. The king himself... Was as bound by the law that was written as the law of the uh, within the law of the Medes and the Persians as uh, every other individual, and, and he's written this law and absolutely committed to it. And now we find that he's he's thinking, and his fury has subsided. He remembered Vashti and what he had done and what he had decreed about her. Isn't that interesting? He's, he's kind of his emotion. His emotion has calmed, and now he's, he's stopped... It's almost as though the way the story white writer is wanting us to, to look at this is to contrast how he is now behaving compared to how he had previously behaved. Previously, it was all emotion. It was spur of the moment. It was listening to people around him who just kind of butted him up and went with the flow and he made decisions. And now he's faced with the reality of those decisions. He's faced with the outcome. He's banished Queen Vashti and now he's he's just thinking about it. He remembers her. He remembers what she'd done and he remembers what he did as a result of it. I banished him. And, and now he's faced with that. Uh, and then the the next stage is remarkable, really. Because the same group of people who are constantly there to kind of Soft soap and keep him sweet and make everything fine. They kind of enter into the story. And the personal attendants come along and they say, they look at the king's demeanor and say, we've got a solution for this. We've got a solution. Why don't we uh, send out a search party? Let's go and uh, engage. Let's go out there and let's find... Uh, beautiful young virgin women and let's bring them to the king's harem. It's interesting the way that's portrayed. There is a sense in which Xerxes, I think, in this particular section is being set before us. It's being set before us. How do we respond? I, I think you could almost say that Xerxes could have written the song, My Way. He could almost have written that song. The words go like this, regrets I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. You can almost see him, can't you? On the throne. You know, yeah, I shouldn't have really done that, should I? Yeah, well, these are the steps that I took. And after all, I did it my way. Just stop. Because he is being placed in front of us, like every great story, to say, is that an appropriate response? Because one of the things that we, we desperately want to see In that set of circumstances is remorse. Is regret, deep regret is repentance. Now we know that he's bound by the law of the Medes and the Persians. We accept that. But it's almost as though Xerxes is being set before us. That even in this moment in time. He still has the opportunity to resolve it his way, to not be faced with the the issues that he has created for himself, to not fall and to say, I have got it wrong. You know that we will never, we will never move forward in our Christian faith. We will never be able to progress until we find those moments when before God we are able to say. I've got it wrong. I I have really got it wrong. I have messed up. I have failed you. I have made the wrong decisions. Why couldn't he do that? Why was it that Xerxes was not able to do that? Well, firstly, because he had a whole group of people around him who were continually reinforcing his rightness. Continually reinforcing his rightness continually smoothing the way for life to be okay and as we saw last week nobody was saying at any step of the way stop that is not a loving thing to do because the outcome of that kind of environment is that you never stop and say i'm sorry you never stop and say i'm sorry You never say, I've got it wrong. You never have the opportunity to be confronted with your reality, for me to be confronted with my reality, and for us to be confronted to say, stop, repent, recognize our failure. We desperately need that. Do you see the way the story writer just ties in themes that are so important to us one of the key themes in the whole of the message of the bible is that we need to reach that point of being confronted we need to reach the point of being uh, confronted by God to be able to say if you like a higher authority that's what Xerxes didn't have He did not have that higher authority that confronted him and challenged him and called him to repent. And the great thing is that we have a God who loves us enough to confront us. Maybe you're thinking about this whole idea of the Christian faith. You might be at that point of saying, well, one of the things that uh, is troubling about the Christian faith for many is the idea that we, we say that we've got it wrong. We, we admit our failures. Because after all, in our, in our culture today, to admit to that uh, and to really take it on board is a direct challenge to our self-esteem. And our self-esteem cannot possibly be confronted because that is the, that is the death of us. If our self-esteem falls apart, that's the death of us. You know, the great thing about the Christian faith is that God does not crush us (laughs) with that confrontation. It's not designed to crush us. It's designed to liberate us. It's designed to, to, to show us the freedom that comes from being honest in our failures. The liberation that comes from a higher voice above us that says, this is where you are. In a sense, Xerxes is the king on the throne who doesn't have that. We have a king who is on the throne and a king who is able to stand in that place and say, you've broken my law. That, In a sense, the law of God is like the Medes and the Persians. It cannot be repealed. It is absolute. It cannot be changed. It stands absolute. But it is not there to crush us. It is there to confront us because he then says, I can bring grace and mercy and forgiveness. Isn't that great news? That we see the comparison there straight away. One king on the throne who's unable to do anything including Repent himself and another king on the throne who is able to accept those who have failed against him. Do you see, Vashti can't get any more to that king who she, in human terms, failed against. But our God welcomes us in our failure. It's great news. So there's the scene. The information comes. Why don't we just set up this great plan? Let's go and find beautiful young virgin women and let's bring them into the harem so that the king might have free choice. That's freedom. That's liberation for the king. That's great hope for the king. We can keep this king happy. We'll just fill the harem with beautiful women. We'll give them beauty treatments. We'll put them under the charge of Haggai. And then we'll make Queen the one who pleases Xerxes in place of Vashti. The story ends and breaks in now with the next little introduction. In a sense, this introduction is, is identity for the individuals. It's defining their identity. There was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jaya, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem from Nebu- by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. She was young. She was beautiful. There's this little family It says that he was taken in. The way the the original language actually uh, carries us along there is that it's not Mordecai who was taken in. That would have happened far too far far into the past for it to be Mordecai himself. It's, it's, if you like, it's this family unit who have been taken captive. They've already been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, which is tying this story in, again, to the book of Daniel, which we see connected to this book of the story of Esther. Uh, That's the kind of flow of the history. We see that Mordecai and his uh, young cousin, who probably, certainly um, Esther, most likely Mordecai, well, yes, absolutely Mordecai, would have been born in captivity. Is this young girl, Esther. Say a young girl, because that's how we would now define it. She was probably between 13 and 16. And there are two things that really the story writer is wanting us to understand. The first thing is we, he wants us to understand who she is in terms of her identity. She is a Jew in other words the way the story is portrayed she is clearly god's person or these are god's people identified by their lineage these are god's people in captivity although by this stage they would have been free to go but their environment had caused them to be in susa they're identified it's as if the, the story writer is, is shining a light with a different color on this little family. But there's more. This is God's people with family history. With a sense of the personal. It's personal in two ways. and I think it's beautiful the way the story writer describes it. Firstly, she's described as Hadassah. That's her Jewish name. She's also known as Esther. Which is her Aramaic name, which is the name that she would probably be used would probably be used while she's, if you like, out and about uh, in Susa. You know, she's out and about. She's she's in the marketplace. She's she's in that bigger environment. She'd probably be Esther. I'm guessing that the way the storyline uh, the way the story is written in that little family environment, she's Hadassah. It's just this really touching little way of communicating relationship and care and compassion in this little family. But there's more. Because the background for Esther is that she's an orphan. Her mother and father have died. And she's been taken into care under the care and love of Mordecai. Mordecai is looking after his young cousin. It's beautifully portrayed. Deliberately beautifully portrayed. Because the contrast is one of profound disruption. There's this beautiful little family scene. Care, compassion, this young Hadassah in the family unit who is ripped out of that family unit ripped out of that family unit she's taken because of the edict that is made in the royal palace i want you to imagine what this might have been like imagine it happening in our country there is an edict that is made in the royal palace and then as a result of that there are Bodies of guards and men who would break into various cities, various townships, and would literally take away young, beautiful, virgin girls. To be taken into the Hari. That is what is going on. Now, I, I, I want to portray it as strongly as that, because it has been portrayed in various circles as here's this young girl who's given kind of the golden ticket, the hot shot, the great opportunity, the opportunity to get in there with the king. That's the way it's been portrayed by some. There is a harsh reality to this that Esther is being trafficked. That's the reality. We would describe her as being trafficked and probably describe her as being trafficked within the narrower definition of being trafficked for sex. There's the reality. This young girl is ripped out of the situation. She's taken into the harem and when the kings, so we read in verse 8, sorry, we read in uh, the the situation, she's taken away Uh, because she is beautiful. Read in verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter. And she's ripped out of that situation, and she is taken away. I think the process is really interesting the way that this is described. Verse 2, she's described three stages. She is sought along with a whole load of others. Verse 3 in the original text, she is gathered with others. And verse 8, she is taken. A breaking in, a disruption without choice. Now, here's the thing, and here's the great challenge of this text, why I think it is so relevant for us today. What happens? How do we live when we are, as described by this text, God's people and terrible, awful just diabolical things happen they happen in this world firstly but secondly they happen to god's people that's what we see we see this young woman who is dragged out of a caring environment and placed in an environment for her to be used what do we do what do we how do we respond profound injustice some have estimated that it might have been up to 1400 young women were taken it's just mind-blowing and yet the reality is that that kind of inhumanity of individual human beings towards other individual human beings is the reality of the world that we live in, isn't it? That's what this story is is wanting to placard in front of us as well. It's saying, wake up and look at the reality of the world. Look at what is going on. You know, we would love to think, wouldn't we? We would love to think that this kind of thing is at the ancient world. We'd love to think that this kind of thing only happened back there in the ancients, the uncultured, the, the awful ancient world. But you know, the reality is inhumanity of, of individuals towards others continues now. It continues now. I read a really interesting comment that what this portrays before us is the problem of the human race repeated throughout history. I think we could say, in a sense, that what we see portrayed before us, the inhumanity of man to man, human being to human being, is as clearly portrayed in the spirit of the plight of the 950 who died a few weeks ago in the Rana Plaza in Bangladesh. Oh, we're nice and distant from it. But you know, the reality of a group of powerful people, uh, the reality of a group of people with lots of money, the reality of people who want their life to be made comfortable, is worked out in the oppression and the terror And the horrors of places which basically use human individuals repeatedly for the sake of somebody else. You see the the connection? (laughs) The powerful connection, I think. In other words, this might be individually directed to one particular person who's behaving in a particular way. But it portrays before us, this is the world that we live in. And it continues. And wrapped up in that mess. Wrapped up in that sense of injustice. Wrapped up in those horrors. Is the reality that those things affect believers and unbelievers. It affects Christians and people who are not Christians. In other words. Being a Christian does not mean. That we are able to live in this nice cosy, protected little bubble where God says everything's going to be fine and the harshness and brutality of this world will never affect you. (laughs) So what happens? If that's the world that we live in, I think there are two alternatives as a result of that, when it hits us personally, when it affects us. Because I'm sure that the sense of brutality, the sense of being used, the sense of hurt, does not have to be those cases of distant, those cases in other parts of the world. There will be us friends in here who feel, in a sense, I know what it is like to be an Esther. I know what it is like to be used. I know that I am living in a world where I have been on the receiving end of brutality and hurt and pain. Am I living in a world, therefore, where God is distant and He doesn't care or He isn't able to do anything about it? Is that the kind? And therefore, how do I live? Do I just kind of do whatever? I think this text gives us great hope. It gives us great hope doesn't seem obviously as though it gives us great hope. But when we read it and when we connect it, I think there is. First thing that we see is what becomes of Esther in this text. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. So there's Esther in that situation. She pleased him and won his favor. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family bra- background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked to and fro near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. That is just—I think—that final verse. It's just beautiful, isn't it? There's Mordecai, probably an older man by this stage. This young uh, treats her like a daughter. She's been ripped from his care. And what he does is he spends all of his time just walking up and down outside of the palace. He desperately wants to know that she's okay. Here's the thing. Is the only care that Esther is in under the hope of the care of Mordecai? Or is there something more? The way this story is written assures us she is under way more care than Mordecai. Because what this story does is it places Esther in a stream of identifying her under God's care. She's, the way the story is written just, wants to, just grabs a hold of us and says she's under God's care. And you say, how is that? Because of verse 9. She pleased him and won his favor. There are other occasions before this where there are individuals who have gone through exactly the same challenges. And they have been shown to be in God's care. One of the individuals is Joseph. Goes into Egypt. He's taken uh, by slave traders. Sold to Potiphar. Who's an incredibly powerful man. And What does it say about Joseph? He found favor before Potiphar. And then it all goes horribly wrong. And he ends up in jail. And in jail, he found favor... Before the jailer. He found favor. Before the jailer. And the way the storyline of Joseph unfolds. Is those various steps as we see it unfolding. Is God's hand. Working out in the life of Joseph. Working out to assure that these various stages. That seem completely disastrous. Seem absolutely impossible. That this could in any way. Be according to God's will and purpose. And yet we see it worked out that this is God working behind the scenes. Where's another one. Connected with this very land, Babylon. Daniel. Daniel's taken as a slave, effectively. And he found, finds favor in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And he becomes instrumental in being God's voice in that situation. He lives out faithfully and he becomes God's voice in that place. Later on, it looks as if it all falls apart and he finds favor again. In the eyes of Darius. (laughs) Hey, is there some kind of a pattern going on here? Is the story being written in such a way to tie us in to the little prompts that the Bible is showing for us as we go through the way God deals with His people? Is there a little glimmer of hope here? I think there's more than a glimmer of hope when we're able to see it from uh, probably about three and a half thousand, three thousand, two and a half thousand years later. We can see the whole of the thing. We can see that when the story writer says she found favor... In the harem, it's a little hint, it's a little indication to say, do you know what? God is working. Behind the scenes, where it seems as though God is silent, God is present. We don't know why yet. We don't know how. We don't know what the relevance of it is. It's in the middle of the most awful of situations, and yet the story writer is giving us a prompt To say, God is working. So what? So Esther, if God is working, how are you to live? Live faithfully. Even in the middle of that. Daniel, how are you to live? Live faithfully, even in the middle of that. Joseph, how are you to live? Live faithfully, even in the middle of that. Because when it looks like the wheel has fallen off, when it looks like life has completely derailed, God is working. There's the hope. There's the truth. There's the reality. What does that say to you and me today? Does God absolutely give us every confidence by personally speaking to us just before a crisis happens and says to us, listen, this is going to happen, but don't worry, I'll be there. No, he doesn't, does he? You know, those crises just explode in life. They just hit us. But when we see it worked out in the lives of others, does it not give us confidence to say, even when God seems silent... God is present. He's with us. He's working it out. When it looks like it's derailed, it's not like God is clamoring to try to work out how to get back on track. In an actual fact, if you think about it, Esther wouldn't even be in this situation if it wasn't for Vashti standing in opposition to the king's demand. She wouldn't even be there. So so just maybe, just maybe God is working in a way which at the time for Esther seems impossible, but is dramatically more important than she could ever imagine. Just maybe. Just maybe for you and for me. Just maybe. When things are working out the way we think, they could never possibly in any way be according to God's will in my life. This can't be God's will. Just maybe. <laughs> well, more than maybe. Absolutely. God is not silent. He might sound silent if that, be, if that can be possible. Yet in that silence, there can be the deafening voice of God. I am with you. So how do we live? How do we live in that? The writer of Hebrews makes the most incredible connection, which I'm going to close with. Hebrews chapter 13, 1 to 5. This is a promise that God is with us. That he'll never leave us. Hebrews 13, 1 to 5 says this. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. To Abraham. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. That sounds all uh, as though the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, this is how to live. Okay? He's saying this is how to live. In other words, when there is a tendency for us to let go of that commitment, because life is difficult, because it hasn't worked out the way I want it to work out, uh, when it looks as if a better option would to de- decide to be not faithful, the writer of Hebrews is saying, continue to live faithfully. And then he goes on to say this, and this is the mind-blowing bit that I found. Why should we live like that? Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You see the connection? Because it's not apparent. He's saying, live like this. Because I've said I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. He's saying, live faithfully. Stick with me. Be faithful to me. Live as the people that you are because I'll never leave you and never forsake you. That is a great encouragement. The writer of Hebrews is wanting us to remember, when it looks like God has forsaken us, keep on living faithfully because He's promised He never will. In other words, I think in a sense, Esther could could have read that apart from that it was written in the New Testament days rather than the Old Testament days. She's says, how should I live? How should I live now I'm suddenly in the harem of King Xerxes? Live faithfully, Esther. Live faithfully because God will never leave you. God will never forsake you, even though it feels like it has. Because the reality is that we have a tendency to say, when it's going horribly wrong, I'll stop living like that. And I'll start living like this. Because do you know what? It just looks better. It looks easier. You know, when horrific relationship crises hit, you might decide, do you know what? I'll sack it. Forget it. I'll not live like that faithful demand calls me to live. I'll just live like this. And I'll, I'll, I'll make myself feel more comfortable like this. Because it looks like God has left me when this has fallen apart. And God is saying, no. I've not left you. I've n- I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Stick with it. Live faithful. Keep going. Because our king is not a dead king. Our king is on the throne. Our king lives... Our King receives the broken and the failure and the ones who are struggling with the challenges of living in the world that we live in today. And He says, keep going. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I give you My Spirit so that you might be those who are able to live faithfully to Me. And when you fall over, I'll pick you up and I'll still receive you. Keep going because... It may well be that your very situation is precisely what God is going to use for good in the future. That's what he promises. And that's exactly what we see here in Esther. There was a plan for the city of Susa. There was a plan that God had in his mind. Which did not appear obvious at this moment in time. But as we see the story unfold. It is absolutely essential. Essential. That Esther is where she is. Because God is working it out. He has a greater plan.